are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is writer and lighthouse aficionado, Shalana Millard. Hi, Shalana. Hi, Jeremy. Thanks for having me back on the podcast. Today is September 19th, 2021, and this is episode 137 of Lighthearted. Today's episode will feature two interviews. First, we'll be talking with Andy Robinson, a high school student in Palo Alto, California, who's starting a new California chapter of the U.S. Lighthouse Society. The Society's director, Jeff Gales, will be joining me for that interview. And then we'll be talking with my friend, Jay Dennis Robinson, who is the historian for the New Hampshire Seacoast region. We'll be talking about his new book that just came out, which is a mystery novel with lots of history mixed in. I should mention that it's a coincidence that both of our guests today have the name Robinson. They are not, at least as far as I know, they're not related to each other. We're well into September now. So how's your summer been, Shalana? Any lighthouse visits? Summer's been going great. Um, no lighthouse visits yet, um, but I'm hoping to get one or two in this month, perhaps for my birthday. Just been trying ah. to figure out how to you know, get back out there and visit some lighthouses safely. And yep. I'm figuring out which ones I want to visit. So I'm excited. I, you know, I'm really anxious to get back out there. So hopefully I'll be able to do that, you know, sometime this month and, and even yeah. next month, perhaps. Yeah, well, I, you know, I went uh, well over a year without visiting any lighthouses, but uh, I've had some really interesting lighthouse visits lately. I've gone to Straitsmith Island in Massachusetts, Tarpaulin Cove Light on Nishan Island, uh, also Massachusetts off Cape Cod. That was a really interesting place. You've got cows, a herd of cows next to the lighthouse. And uh, it was a hot day when we were there and the cows were going for a dip in the ocean. So that was that was kind of cool. Uh, I went to Palmham Rocks Lighthouse in Rhode Island this past weekend uh, for the return of their historic Fresnel lens. And I'll be putting a video together of that day, my visit there. So that was a, a really fun visit. As I mentioned, this is September 19th. Uh, has anything interesting happened on this date in lighthouse history, Shalana? Two days from now, September 21st, is the anniversary of one of the worst hurricanes in the history of the East Coast of the United States, the Hurricane of 1938. It's also known as the New England Hurricane because the worst effects of the storm were in the Northeast. The hurricane did more than $308 million in damage, which would have been more than $5 billion today. More than 600 people died in the storm, including seven at lighthouses along the south coast of New England. Yeah. Oh, it was a really terrible storm at uh, Whale Rock at the entrance to the West Passage of Narragansett Bay in Rhode Island. A cast iron lighthouse was knocked right off its base. The 40 year old assistant keeper, Walter Eberly, who was uh, alone at the lighthouse when the hurricane struck, uh, was never seen again. Today, you can still see the remains of the base of the lighthouse. If you go to Beavertail Lighthouse in uh, Jamestown, Rhode Island, you can uh, see that uh, old base in the distance. And also there's a memorial plaque for Walter Eberly at that museum. Also on September 19th, 1967, the American baseball player Jim Abbott was born in Michigan. He had a 10-year career as a major league pitcher, even though he was born with no right hand. He once said, quote, never allow the circumstances of your life to become an excuse. People will allow you to do it, but I believe we have a personal obligation to make the most of the abilities we have, unquote. 
So let's get to our first guest, Andy Robinson. Andy is a junior at Palo Alto High School in California, and he's a co-chair for the Teen Advisory Council of the Palo Alto History Museum, where he helped create an historical time capsule of his city. Andy has also been a volunteer for the U.S. Lighthouse Society's Passport Program, helping to update information on stamp locations and events. He's written histories for a series of collectible passport stamps to commemorate lost lighthouses, and Andy is also a writer and editor of Verde, a student-run magazine for Palo Alto High School. Andy is now in the process of starting a California chapter of the U.S. Lighthouse Society, which will be called the California Lighthouse Society. He's an impressive young guy. Uh, and I also want to mention Jeff Gales, the executive director of the U.S. Lighthouse Society, joined me uh, for the conversation I had with Andy Robinson, recorded very recently. So let's listen to that now. I'm speaking today with Andy Robinson, and Andy lives in Palo Alto, California. And Andy is in the process of starting a new California chapter of the United States Lighthouse Society. Hi, Andy. Hi, it's good to be here. I'm really excited. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for, for joining me today. And also with us today, taking part in this conversation is my good friend, Jeff Gales, who is the executive director of the U.S. Lighthouse Society. Hi, Jeff. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Good. Good. Thanks for being here also, Jeff. So, Andy, first of all, get some basic information out of the way. Tell our listeners uh, your age. I'm 16. I'm a rising junior at Palo Alto High School. So. Okay. Uh, this is September, so you're just starting your, your junior year. Is that right? Yeah. Right. Okay. How did you get interested in lighthouses? So when I was about four or five, I'm not sure the exact age, it's been a while, but I got excited about like seeing lighthouses on the television. And my dad got me a book, a picture book of lighthouses. And over time, that became my favorite book. I think I still have it. I believe it's called, it's called American Lighthouses. And my parents had always been very interested in history and architecture and geography. And I think that kind of like bolstered my interest in lighthouses. And I remember asking my parents um, if we could go visit actually the Point Pinos Lighthouse in Pacific Grove, California. So that's about two hours away from where we live. And I was about six years old. And I'll never forget, like, as we drove closer and closer, I remember my heart was being faster and faster in anticipation and I remember my dad lifting me up by my shoulder so I could get a closer look at the lighthouses and like exclaiming that that was the lighthouse. And I was just over the moon and really ecstatic about it. So I, I was just super excited. And that was also yeah. where I got my first lighthouse passport, um, which is now pretty tattered, but I've had it ever since. What a great memory to have. And while well, you mentioned Point Penis, any other particular lighthouse visits that uh, stand out for you? Obviously, I live in the Bay Area, so I live very close to Pigeon Point, and I've visited mm -hmm. that lighthouse numerous times. But as far as really memorable, specific stories, there's a couple that spring to mind. I remember uh, with my dad, I, I got the chance to visit this lighthouse called Punta Gorda Lighthouse in Northern California on the Lost Coast, and it's a very remote setting. Yeah. Um, it's an area where essentially like the coastal highway, Highway 1, very famous was rerouted inland. So there's no coastal highway. And it's even today, it's incredibly remote. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an incredibly remote region. And so I remember we got up incredibly early at like 4.45 a.m. or something because the tides, you have to walk like a couple miles and you have to make sure that you're not going to get washed out. So you have to leave at a very particular time. 
Um, and the route is incredibly beautiful. And not only the, the coastal road, but the actual hike itself is very beautiful, but it's actually quite strenuous. There's like a lot of sand dunes and, um, but that was a really memorable experience. And- Can you uh, estimate how long the hike was? I believe it was about two and a half miles each way, but it was very strenuous because you have these like massive sand dunes and that kind of makes it difficult to- What did uh, you find when you got there actually to the location of Punta Gorda? The lighthouse itself is in pretty rough condition, I would say. Still there. It's still there. It's just the lighthouse and the oil house. And you can kind of climb in it, although I would not recommend it. Definitely not structurally sound, but it's it's still there. And there's kind of some remnants of the old keeper's quarters, which I think used to look sort of like how the keeper's houses looked at Point Cabrillo to get like an image in your mind. But essentially, you know, there's some station ruins and there was, you know, some sea lions and it was very peaceful. And it was it was really like kind of a humbling experience to be there in just such a remote, awe-inspiring location. So I can imagine, you know, I've been to Petrola, California before, and I've never uh, taken that hike out to Punta Gorda just because of the, the difficulty of it. So I give you credit for doing that. And it's interesting to hear what's out there. It looks like the, the sea lions are the, the lighthouse keepers now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's one of the uh, California lighthouses I have not seen, but maybe I'll make it back out there and attempt that hike sometime. So, Andy, uh, what has made you decide uh, to start a California chapter of the U.S. Lighthouse Society? As I said, I've always been really interested in lighthouses. I think there's just something really alluring to them. And I think not only are they just really incredibly beautiful, but I think just sort of the community around them is really exciting to me. You know, it's it's a group of people who are really passionate and invested in lighthouses. Every time I go to a lighthouse, you always meet someone new. And yeah, the the you know, the beauty of lighthouses combined with the community was really what led me to, you know, consider there's not to my understanding a statewide organization uh, in the state of California dedicated to lighthouse preservation. We've got a number of very strong regional organizations for the specific lighthouses but we do not have um, a statewide organization like, you know, or a region-wide organization like you do in some other areas where lighthouses are closer together. And I, I thought that this, you know, this is a really great opportunity to do something really exciting um, and help, you know, these lighthouses out. Um, and ultimately the goal is to encourage people to visit these lighthouses and to preserve these lighthouses for future generations. And, you know, there's just so much, um, opportunity to increase visitation and preservation and all that stuff. So, yeah, sounds good to me. And what are some of the types of things you envision this uh, California chapter doing? I think the main kind of big picture, the goal is kind of to unite the state's lighthouses and kind of make it more of a cohesive unit and create opportunities for people to see multiple lighthouses at once in, in like a really unified, like I said, cohesive manner. So that could include, you know, creating like itineraries um, and having them at each lighthouse. And we could also consider, you know, doing specific events um, at, at lighthouses, doing lighthouse challenges. I know that's a big thing that people are excited about. I know there's like a New Jersey lighthouse challenge, Maryland lighthouse challenge. That's definitely something we could do, although California is a huge state. So obviously it would be a more regional effort. 
Um, And then we were also interested in, you know, maybe having cruises in the Bay Area. The Bay Area is kind of the one place where we have a bunch of um, really interesting historic lighthouses all in the same compact region. So that's definitely something we're going to consider and really just like creating special experiences to get people to visit lighthouses, maybe lighthouse festivals was another idea. And this would really, I would hope, get local businesses involved and get people really excited in these communities as well. And kind of more broadly, I would hope that, you know, this is something that not just people who are interested in lighthouses would would want to get excited about. There's just so much you know, lighthouses in California, especially, there's, they're so intertwined with the history of the state and the communities in the state. And there's just so many, I think it's just exciting to look at the bigger picture. It all sounds great to me. You had a lot of, a lot of good ideas that certainly uh, no end to the possibilities. Just um, to confirm, there is no statewide organization looking at California lighthouses. So it would be something that is unique. And uh, I think it's an excellent idea. California is a big state and it's almost like a small country if you look at it that way. And there's a lot of opportunity. And obviously, of course, the goal is to, you know, raise money for lighthouses as well. Um, I mean, that's that's kind of the biggest goal here is to preserve the lighthouses themselves. We're thinking about doing a preservation grant system um, that's in the works. So stay tuned for that. Um, we're, we're hoping to raise uh, money to preserve lighthouses and dole money out to specific lighthouses. And, and maintaining a lighthouse is, of course, incredibly expensive. Obviously, you know, the ocean can corrode things and it's a challenge. And so, you know, hopefully this organization can help significantly help a lot of these lighthouses. I like what you were saying about, the, you know, other subjects that people are interested in that are connected to lighthouses and bringing everybody into the lighthouse preservation movement, whether they're, you know, interested in the ocean or oceanography or geology or uh, archaeology, anything of that, the natural environment, all of that's connected to lighthouse preservation. So, and then of course, there's a lot of that in California. Particularly in the era of the pandemic, I think a lot of people are really eager to get out. And I really hope that we can kind of promote this organization as a way to uh, promote, you know, people getting out and seeing lighthouses, which are located in some of, I think, California's most beautiful natural environments. And I was thinking it's always like a sort of like a two prong attack in a way, you know, uh, getting people to experience the lighthouses and raising money for them really go hand in hand. Obviously, you have to expose people to the lighthouses, uh, educate them to some degree. And they'll, the more they, they know, uh, the more they appreciate them, the more they'll want to uh, help out financially and to volunteer. Uh, and I'm sure you'll be looking for volunteers eventually, too, to help uh, with some of these efforts. Yeah, absolutely. Again, like my big hope is that we can really involve a broad range of people, um, whether they're interested in lighthouses specifically or not. I really want to emphasize that, you know, if we were able to, for example, throw a lighthouse festival, I was saying earlier, we could get local businesses to sell their products at the lighthouse. And I I think people would be really excited about that and try to get local schools involved, um, helping out with volunteering at lighthouses. So I think there's, there's so many directions we could go with this. And I really have a lot of hope for you know, the kind of like community spirit that something like this could bring. Well, I think it's a, an idea whose time has come. And I think you're the right person to, uh, to take this forward. Uh, and let, let me ask you a question that's a little bit, uh, it's related, but it's a, a little bit off topic. Andy, do you have any more thoughts about uh, ways 
young people, ways we, uh, meaning uh, those of us who have been involved in lighthouse preservation for a long time, we're not getting getting any younger. Do you have any thoughts about ways to get young people involved in uh, being interested in lighthouses and helping to preserve lighthouses? I think kind of a couple of things. I, I definitely think that you know, increasing promotion of lighthouses on social media is really important. That's where a lot of young people are is on social media. And I know that lighthouses such as Point Cabrillo, who I know you interviewed earlier, they have a very robust social media campaign. And I think that helps them a lot. And I think that really attracts people to lighthouses as you see these beautiful pictures of lighthouses and that makes you want to go visit. So I definitely think that social media is a really key ingredient to this. And as I said earlier, I think other than social media, especially for you know people in local communities, I think it's a lot about you know getting people in those local towns or cities or wherever to uh, visit the lighthouse and kind of be connected to it in some substantial way, you know whether that be like volunteering or educational programs um, or something like that. Hey Andy, what types of social media do you think would be good to? go after to attract more uh, of a younger audience to lighthouse preservation? I think definitely Instagram is probably the main one, especially given that we're dealing with lighthouses and lighthouses, it's a very visual topic. You know, lighthouses are just, a lot of them are in such beautiful locations. So definitely Instagram for young people, maybe TikTok, but I'm not on there. So I'm, I'm not maybe the one to ask about that. Wait, you're, um, not, you're not on there yet. Not on there yet. Yeah. Uh, but, but Instagram is, I would say the main one. Um, yeah. And again, that's such a natural fit because lighthouses, as I said, are, you know, so beautiful. And if we did more aggressive promotion of lighthouses on Instagram, that would really send a lot of people their way. Well, you had mentioned that you were inspired by obviously before Instagram existed, a uh, book of lighthouse photos. So it's uh, basically the same thing. It's just digital, right? Yeah, absolutely. TikTok's a great idea. You know, we are producing uh, videos that are going on the USLHS YouTube channel, but uh, USLHS does not have a TikTok account yet, but that's something we should consider. It's, it's an art form in itself, creating those, those little videos. So. so what can people expect, Andy, uh, by the time this podcast episode is released? Or will there be ways for them to get more information? Absolutely. So a few days after uh, the podcast is released, we should have an email going out um, and that'll have more information um, we'll have a website um, and you can learn more about what we're going to be doing, hopefully upcoming events and ways you can donate. This podcast at least should also be posted on the USLHS news blog um, as well as on Facebook. So uh, stay tuned. Absolutely. I'll just mention too that I think uh, because the U.S. Lighthouse Society was founded in California, uh, we do have an extensive uh, group of people there in that state that are interested in preserving lighthouses. And we definitely will be reaching out to everybody in California that are members and past members of the society to let them know what we're doing. So Andy, do you have any closing thoughts about the chapter or California lighthouses or anything lighthouse related? Yeah, I, I just wanted to say, you know, first of all, I want to thank both of you, both uh, Jeff and Jeremy for supporting me in this endeavor. I, I really can't thank you guys enough. I, I really appreciate your input and your willingness to support me in something like this. I know it's kind of a, a big leap. So I'm really happy that you guys are so willing to do this. Uh, Andy, it's not that big of a leap, really. You know, we've been discussing for a long time about how we would 
uh, be able to attract so get the younger generation into the lighthouse preservation movement, it makes total sense for somebody like you and your age to communicate with people of your age. And it makes total sense. I'm so excited to see how you develop the chapter and how it grows and how successful you are. And I think it's going to be great. I second everything you said, said Jeff. It's a, it's a, it's just a perfect idea. It's like, uh, you know, it's one of those ideas when somebody says it, you think, why hasn't anybody done that yet? But uh, you have the energy and the, the intelligence and the, uh, you know, the enthusiasm to, to make this happen. So we thank you for doing what you're doing. Yeah, I think Jeremy makes a good point. The enthusiasm, that's what it's all about. Having uh, the drive to keep pushing forward, even when you're going to hit setbacks. And you're going to get people who tell you every which way opinion, and you just have to go with your heart and, and make sure this works. And uh, I think you have the ability to do that. I, I just hope that, you know, with, with something like this, I, I hope it, it just gets people excited and I hope it uh, helps people, you know, maybe view lighthouses in a new lens for people who aren't really interested. You know, I know people, you know, will see lighthouses on postcards and stuff, but I, I hope that kind of tying all of the California lighthouses together and, and fundraising for them and throwing events at them. I hope that just gets people excited and, and helps people view them in lighthouses in a new way that they never really had before. Lighthouses are such a big part of the story of California. And I think we just really want to celebrate that. I look, I like what you say, Andy, about getting lighthouses working together as well. A lot of times I find, especially in a big state like California, one lighthouse doesn't know what the other one's doing and they don't communicate with each other. And um, there's power in numbers. So being able to bring all the California lighthouses together is hugely important. And I think uh, you have the ability to do that. I think we're all on the same page with this. There's no doubt about that. That's a lot of what, what the USLHS overall is all about is getting these uh, people to communicate and all working for the same goal. Certainly what this podcast, what I'm trying to do with this podcast too. So Andy, uh, amen to everything uh, you said about your your goals. It's just fantastic. Uh, I wish you all the success in the world and we'll be working with you and helping uh, whoever we can as things move forward. So thank you, Jeff Gales, for taking part in this uh, conversation today. And thank you so much, Andy, and good luck. Yeah, thank you, guys. I, I really appreciate it. It was a real pleasure talking with Andy Robinson, and I'm looking forward so much to seeing the California Lighthouse Society develop over time. And as I said in the interview, it's an idea whose time has come. So we have another guest today, Shalana. Please help me tell our listeners about J. Dennis Robinson. Sure, Jeremy. J. Dennis Robinson is a popular columnist, lecturer, and public historian living in Portsmouth on the New Hampshire seacoast. He's the author of a dozen books on topics ranging from Jesse James, child labor exploitation, the Strawberry Bank Museum in Portsmouth, archaeology at the Isles of Shoals off the New Hampshire coast, and the infamous 1873 Smutty Nose Island Axe Murders. He's also written about 3,000 published articles on a variety of history topics. I've known Dennis for about 20 years, and I quickly learned when I moved to Portsmouth, New Hampshire here, uh, where I still live, uh, that Dennis is the go-to guy for history in this area. His latest book is A Real Change of Pace. It's a mystery novel called Point of Graves. It's his first full-length novel. The plot of Point of Graves concerns a mysterious death 
in a Portsmouth cemetery. Could the dead man and his missing manifesto connect to a growing fears that an ancient cemetery lies beneath the site of the city's next high-rise parking garage? Mystery author Alice K. Boatwright said this about Point of Grace, quote, from history to mystery, Robinson is a master at celebrating while dissecting his New Hampshire hometown. His debut novel is a page turner, unquote. You know, this interview is a little different than uh, the usual uh, things we do in this podcast because Dennis is not really connected directly to lighthouses. He's not a lighthouse keeper, a lighthouse owner, a lighthouse preservationist, although he has written a number of articles about White Island Lighthouse off the New Hampshire coast uh, near here. In my conversation with him a couple of weeks ago, we talked about his new novel and about the process of writing fiction versus nonfiction. But we also talked about Dennis's ideas about the iconic importance of the local lighthouses. And Dennis had some interesting observations. He's always got interesting things to say. I love talking with him. So let's listen to my conversation with J. Dennis Robinson now. I am speaking today with my friend, uh, author and historian, J. Dennis Robinson. Thank you so much for being with me today, Dennis. Hey, Jeremy. So uh, when I first moved to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, about 20 years ago, I, I very quickly learned that Dennis is the historian for the New Hampshire Seacoast region. And Point of Graves is uh, Dennis's first full-length novel. I think I have that right, Dennis, right? It is your first full-length novel, right? It is. It's fully lengthy. So what led to the writing of Point of Graves? And part two of that question is, what was the process of writing it uh, like for you? Actually, well, I know very clearly what led to it. Um, A friend of mine, Rod Philbrick, is a uh, sort of famous uh, young adult author. He wrote Freak the Mighty and uh, The Fire Pony and a lot of other novels. And we used to sit around and talk on Friday nights. It was kind of like a little literary cluster that would hang out at this club. And I was writing nonfiction books. I think I've written 12 history books now. You know, I kept saying to him, Rod, Rod, this, what you do is so easy. You just make it up. You know, you don't have to do what I do. You don't have to do all the hard work. And, and a hardcover book that I work on takes about three years. And he was challenging me back. You know, anybody can look up stuff and write about it. And what you do is so easy. And what I do is hard. So I said, oh, yeah, well, um, why don't I just write a novel? And six months later, I handed him the novel. And he he read it. And he said, you know, this isn't terrible. (laughs) Um, And that actually turned out to be what's going to be the second book in this series, which is called Jones Bones. This is actually a three-parter. Well, it it could be a three-parter if I can afford the first part. And that kind of kicked around, and then I actually wrote the first part. And it's very weird. I mean, you know, I've written, I've been calculating it off and on, but I think somewhere near 3,000 history articles that I've published And so that's a lot of stuff to be banging around in a very small brain. And it's all still there. You know, you'd think that if you write an article, I mean, I do about 100 pieces a year for the newspaper, that it would be gone. But it's all still there. And so between the 12 books and thousands of articles, and you have to tell the truth. You have to be honest and you have to do a lot of research. You know, it can take weeks and weeks and months to do it. A research for a short article. 
you know, I put the, the, the novel aside for years, and then this whole indie book thing has become quite a process. I mean, you can do your own book nowadays, and it's yep. shockingly. So I just thought, I just finished a book on a music hall in Portsmouth, which took another three years, had 300 photographs, there's the design phase, the printing, you wait for the books to come back. And I just thought, wow, you know. So I pulled out this novel idea. And yes, I have to admit that there was a concept to it. The concept, the original concept was there's so many historic houses and sites in Portsmouth, which I know way too well. What if I started a series of books in which somebody was murdered in each of the historic houses, which, you know, means that I had a lot of material you know, Sue Grafton did what? Almost the entire alphabet with her alphabet murders. So anyway, that's the idea. And in this one, the character that's found dead in the first chapter, because somebody said to me, kill somebody in the first chapter. <laughs> and I never get to kill anybody, you know, in, <laughs> in my books. Um, they're already dead. <laughs> and right. so this headline in the newspaper, an imaginary headline just came to me, and I just thought, you know, the headline was uh, Dead Man Found in Cemetery. And I just imagined if I was working for a newspaper, how much, how fun it would be to put that headline in the local newspaper. And that ended up being the first chapter in which there's a character who is found dead of an apparent suicide in the North Church Cemetery or the North Cemetery. Which, right. if you're from Portsmouth, is is very famous. There's uh, William Whipple, a signer of the Declaration, is there, and John Langdon, and Prince Whipple, uh, the enslaved character from William Whipple, and it's right across the street from what used to be the newspaper office. And I just like the, the the opening idea that there was a dead guy sitting across from the newspaper office, but nobody noticed. You know, right. it's kind of shocking what once you reach a certain age, how much. <laughs> Stuff is floating around in your head. But the big deal between Rod and myself was that he said, you know, it's it's all about dialogue. You, you've got to have a yeah. plot. You've got to have setting, but you've got to be able to do dialogue. And I can do dialogue. I mean, I, I could always yeah. do dialogue. I wrote plays all my life, but I didn't know I could write dialogue because, you know, when you write history, when you write dialogue, you're basically quoting probably something that somebody wrote rather than said. And... I apparently have an ear for dialogue because I've been getting all these people who amazingly aren't related to me and like the book. They keep mentioning the dialogue and the characters, and the characters are very alive. And, of course, you know, you're burying a lot of yourself or unearthing a lot of yourself. So at one point I rented the carriage house at the John Paul Jones House Museum, and that's where my main character ends up living as the caretaker. And I was thinking... I. You know, maybe I'd be happier if I was the caretaker instead of doing what I do. And he's a nearsighted person like I am. And he has a a partner from the past who disappeared in a shocking way, which I had. And these characters, he hangs around at the Athenaeum a lot, which I do. So there's that element of it. But yes, there was this idea... The other thing that bothered me was that I read so many mystery books or books in which you get to the end and you're not happy. You know, it's like, geez, there's this cheesy 
And you go, ooh, it was the one-legged man, and you find out, oh, there were two one-legged men, but <laughs> you didn't know there were two. Yeah. <laughs> and I find the endings very unsatisfying. Yeah, yeah. And I guess the other element, the two other elements were that I wanted to promote Portsmouth as a place to come to. Right. And somebody even noted that you could use the novel Point of Graves almost like a walking tour of Portsmouth because pretty much everything that I talk about, the historic stuff, is real. Right. And, But it's not historic fiction in the sense that it's we're not in the 1800s or the 1700s. Right. We're in sort of now. Mm-hmm. We're in kind of a now, a very modern time period, but my character is a bit of a Luddite. He doesn't have a cell phone. And then the other element was that I, I can't help it. You know, I was a teacher. I'm an educator. I'm a content provider. So how could I get away with talking about Portsmouth history? And you talk about it in terms of the, of the murder. And very important to me was the uh, black history of Portsmouth, which is just huge. It's just this massive, you know, I've been writing about black history in Portsmouth for 25 years. And it's now become, as it should have been, an extremely important point of view for looking at Portsmouth because Portsmouth, there was a lot of slavery and discrimination yeah. and in Portsmouth. So that became kind of a sub, subtext. So yes, it's, it's everything that you shouldn't do in a novel. It's kind of like instructive. It's, uh, it's a travelogue. Um, but it all depends on whether you love the characters. And I did not know that until the first dozen people that I sent the book to started reading it. And their response was, hey, I really like the characters. And so I thought, yeah. okay, well, let's, let's keep this going. And if it, if it survives, there will be at least two more in which some of the puzzles set up in the first novel will reveal themselves over the next two novels. Uh, yeah, don't give too much away. But, you know, you mentioned uh, your your friend's uh, quote there. I was looking at the quotes on the back of the book, and I don't see this isn't terrible on there. That seems like uh, maybe it should have been on there. But I reserve that. That may be on the Amazon uh, order page. I, <laughs> I, think, I think when it came right down to it, uh, uh, Rod got a little kinder in his uh, final review. But uh, I, yeah. I think it was just a bit of a surprise because you – you don't know, but a lot of writers are genre writers. But, you know, I have done poetry. I've done scripts. I've done a couple of hundred video scripts. And it it's like being a carpenter that can make a, something on a turning wheel, but also mm-hmm. knows how, you know, these are crafts. These are things you mm-hmm. learn. I mean, mm-hmm. at my age, I no yeah. longer think of it as some miraculous thing. It It, it is a craft. It is something yes, that yes. you, you know... You write 3,000, 1,000-word essays. I mean, if, if you ask me to write a 1,000-word essay now, I can sit down, and when I stop, there will be at somewhere between 1,000 and 1,003 words on the page, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, you do write great dialogue. There's no doubt about that. I was going to mention that, and uh, I know how hard that is. Uh, a little secret between you and me, I, I uh, started uh, probably at least five years ago trying to write a novel, and I wrote about 100 pages and put it aside. I was happy with how it started, that I wasn't that happy with it after a while. So, I, you know, it's it's been simmering back there, and I haven't given up on it. But my biggest problem was writing dialogue. Uh, you know, I think I'm pretty good at writing description, but to write realistic, both realistic but interesting dialogue is is, is a real 
a real skill, uh, an art form that you've uh, you've mastered. Well, one thing about dialogue, I think, is that I have really bad eyesight. I mean, you know, twenty twenty is good. My eyesight is twenty six hundred. So it's kind of like a Spider Man thing. Is that if one of your senses is not functioning at full force, other senses pick up and fill in, and mm-hmm. your ears. I am very attuned to what I hear. And so, you know, when you grow up as kind of a wordsmith person, one of those little nerdy kids that likes words when they're little, and then you lose some of your visual ability, your hearing picks up and you're very attuned to... I was always one of those people who was, you know, when somebody would say something really weird in a restaurant, I would scribble it down on a napkin and say, I'm going to use this later. (laughs) But... I never did. It becomes part of of your toolkit of skills. I love the uh, you've been talking about the the use of the historic homes and everything else in, in Portsmouth. One of the, the statements on the back of the book, one of the recommendations I, I love is the uh, let's see the author Alice Boatwright of Seattle said uh-huh. that you basically that you celebrate and dissect your New Hampshire hometown Portsmouth, which I think is a really good way oh, of putting yeah. it. Dissect is a real interesting word to use, considering the uh, the subject matter. Yeah, I have a, I have a lot to say about my hometown that isn't nice, and to me, you know, you you can't really work that into a book about the history of an axe murder on the Isle of Shoals, you know, right. and it's there and it's simmering, but it always bothers me that people are, particularly older people, which some of us have become. You get, they get cranky, and they start moaning about how – I didn't think it would happen to us. You know, I thought we would be different, but a lot of people uh, in their elder years begin to complain about everything, and yeah. people are very upset that Portsmouth is becoming a city with tall buildings, and it sounds like the same crankiness that people said back in the old days when we were young, and we were saying, yeah, but – it's vital. It's picking up. And yes, some of these buildings are ugly. But then it occurred to me, wow, you can kind of use this stuff in fiction that mm-hmm. you can't, you know, it's kind of like a lease valve. So there may be a fair amount of, because part of the plot revolves around the building of the next huge parking garage in Portsmouth, which is always a big argument that goes on for decades. And whether or not that parking lot is about to be built on upon the ancient African-American burying ground that no one has seen for a couple of hundred years. And so it gave me the opportunity to, you know, there's a mayor in there, there's a city manager that if you live around Portsmouth, you will instantly know who it is. But I deny everything because, yeah. you know, in fiction, you just, in fiction, you just put that little thing in the front that says absolutely no connection between this person that you can clearly tell who it is and right. my character. I'd like to talk more about the, the book, but this is a podcast about lighthouses, uh, in theory, at least. And uh, if we just uh, do maybe, maybe a really sharp turn here, a little uh, segue into uh, just talking a little bit about lighthouses. I know... Uh, you have not written any books on the local lighthouses, but I used to write articles for your website about them. Lighthouses are obviously part of our, our local uh, landscape and, and history and uh, connected to, to many of the stories you've written about. 
in many ways. So what do you think our lighthouses mean to the New Hampshire seacoast, uh, both in the past and, and presently, would you say? Well, it's hard to write about our local lighthouses because between you and Jane Porter's book, which is huge, yes, um, about the three friendly edifices, the three yes. lighthouses here. Yeah. Um, I've written a lot about White Island Lighthouse. Yes, you have. Um, yeah. Ironically, my next book is a history of Newcastle Island. There will be a whole page on this lighthouse uh, on the on the Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse. And my book after that is called 1623, which is about the founding of New Hampshire, the, the settlement, which was is directly across in Rye from where the lighthouse is now. And everything seems to center around that as it should. I mean, these things are massive and iconic. I'm, I'm finishing a a book now on the North Church. Well, what are the two icons of the sea? The three icons of the seacoast are the North Church, the lighthouses, and the tugboats. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're going to make a T-shirt or a poster, that's what you put. When I first started my website in the 90s, I stole an image of the lighthouse. And I was just thinking how often the, the, the icon of the daily newspaper stole yep. well back. We take these things when technically, in many ways, we should be paying a fee. If it was any other house, we'd be sued for using these images. But right. they're so iconic, you know. And so that's the, that's the sadness of, of the whole process is that we tend to think of things that are super iconic as something that should always be there and that we own. And... We don't. You know, the, it took a million and a half dollars to repair the steeple downtown at the yep. North Church. These are really, really important. I mean, I've been in and out of this harbor on tall ships and catamarans and speedboats and gundalos and canoes, and rowing shells. And you know where you are totally because of that lighthouse. I mean, that's what tells you. It's not just that you're entering the ocean and the, the, you know, the current is picking up and it's getting scary. It's that lighthouse is the thing you look up at and say, oh, okay, everything's all right. I'm going to be okay. It, they are massively calming and helpful, and yet we don't think of it that way because that we're so used to them. You know, they're kind of like our parents or, or our own home or something, which is why the work that you guys do is so astonishing because you have to do the work that the rest of us aren't doing. You know, we're just appropriating and enjoying, and, and you're actually keeping these things standing and operating. And, you we're know, trying. Well, you have to pat yourself on the back for that, because, you know, just imagine the work that it takes. Well, I know the work that it takes, because I've seen you guys doing it over the years. And, you know, I'm working on the cover for that book, and the first thing we did was say, you know, what are we going to put on the cover? And we all said... The lighthouse, you know, and nobody mm-hmm. called on the phone and said, hi, can we use the lighthouse, you know, because we assume that that is the symbol of, and it, it's symbolic of so many things. I mean, it's symbolic of safety and all the things that make us feel more comfortable about our lives. And it, it's a big deal. I mean, I, you know, back in the day, I still have 
toilet paper with uh, lighthouses on it, <laughs> towels with lighthouses on it, you know, because wow. I didn't back know. When we used to shop at the lighthouse, lighthouse store, Depot. everything, yeah. all your lighthouse needs. But we're, yeah. we're not doing the work. You guys are doing the work. And I think that's, that's what's important. You know, somebody was said the other day to me, oh, do you have to put a lighthouse on the cover? And I said, yes, I really want... Well, those lighthouse people are just like, you know, and I just tried to explain how important those lighthouse people are. I'm just going to steal it and uh, (laughs) we'll send you a a check. If we want to build a dock at Whaleback Lighthouse, we need a a lot of money. And that's uh, that's one of the aims right now. When can we go to Whaleback? Uh, when we get a dock there, when we get a few hundred thousand dollars to to get that built. Well, but having well, well, been inside White Light and inside Fort Point Light, you know, yeah. Whaleback is is the is the winner. That that that's the one we really want to see. Well, I I'm always attracted to the offshore so-called wave swept lighthouses like Whaleback, and I've taken pictures of waves going more than seventy feet up in the air when they hit the rocks out there. So it's a it's a very dramatic place. And you're right about the fact that a lot of people take it for granted when they use images of lighthouses all over the place, uh, kind of appropriate the uh, the images. And it's a kind of interesting that the Portsmouth Herald, the Portsmouth, New Hampshire newspaper, used Whaleback Lighthouse as their logo, which is yeah. in Kitter- Kittery, Maine, <laughs> just barely. But uh, I don't th- I'm sure they didn't realize that. It was just it's a local So what icon. you're telling me is, if I get to the third novel, if Point of Graves and then Jones of Bones comes out, that I have to kill somebody in the lighthouse? Uh, that's that's up to you, but... Uh, you, now, you're... is it good publicity or bad publicity? Because anytime <laughs> you're walking up well, that stairs, you can't think of anything else but... <laughs> yeah, right. Well, we already have people... A lot of people are familiar with our ghost stories. We have a Portsmouth Harbor lighthouse, and White Island is also known for its ghost stories. Whaleback, not so much, but... Uh, so you'd be kind of feeding into that, uh, the macabre uh, side. Oh, Whaleback is a little inaccessible to ghosts. It's not. Right. It's too hard for them to get there, and uh, there's not enough visitors to scare to keep them going. But uh, no, I mean, I just, you know, when you asked me to do this, I was just thinking, boy, it, I, it will be on the cover of the next of the book that's coming out on Newcastle. Oh, you know, all of us need to realize that how incredibly difficult it must be for you guys to just keep these things standing. And and I still don't think that most people understand the situation. I don't think most people understand that the Coast Guard isn't still running them. Yeah, to clarify, first of all, uh, the American Lighthouse Foundation, which I'm president of, we own Whaleback Lighthouse, and we have a license with the Coast Guard to care for Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse, a.k.a. Fort Point Light in Newcastle. Uh, we've been taking care of that for 20 years. White Island Light is owned by the state of New Hampshire. And as you've written quite a bit about over the years, the uh, an organization called the Lighthouse Kids, made up of uh, local school kids, raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for that one. But um, you're, you're right. The Coast Guard aids to navigation teams still take care of the lights in many cases, the actual navigational light and a, a fog signal if there is one. But organizations like ours are taking care of the uh, the actual structures because the Coast Guard doesn't have, doesn't have the money anymore, unfortunately. Let me let me ask you a, another question, which you've kind of already answered to to some degree, but just a big uh, kind of blanket question: uh, Why should historic buildings uh, and lighthouses, being one uh, brand of historic buildings, why should historic buildings be preserved? 
Well, they're the touchstone to the past. I mean, you know, they're it. I mean, we increasingly, you know, when you touch half the new buildings down in downtown Portsmouth, you feel nothing. I mean, it's just, we know what it is. You know, it's a, it's a big, tall metal structure with a brick facade that's supposed to look like something old, but it isn't. But when you go into the Warner House or the John Paul Jones House, I mean, I was just in the Warner House the other day, mm-hmm. and the Warner House was built in 1715, 1716. The mural on the inside of the Warner House is the oldest mural been on the wall where it is in, in America. It's a, it's the painting of a, of a couple of Native Americans and all kinds of, like, it's sitting right there. When you go into Polly's library, the little girl that lived there, all the books that her parents brought over in the 1700s, her library is sitting right there. When you, when you touch the bureau in her bedroom or you walk through these places, this is it. This is, this is where we connect with the past. And as you probably know, I mean, I'm getting indications from my publishers that people would like uh, less history, more nostalgia is the comment that I got the other day, because people aren't clicking on history as much as they used to. And so I don't think that we have lost connection to history. I just think that in a 140 character world in which, you know, everything has to fit, (laughs) has a picture of a little kitty on it and has to fit in a tiny little space. I think we are actually aching for a connection to the past. And these these are the connections. And even when people come to modern-day Portsmouth and they see these, well, they're not really skyscrapers. They're skyscrapers to us if they're more than three stories high. But when they see these modern buildings, they may be coming for designer beer or they may be coming from for some sort of festival or something. But this place is anchored by the fact that every few feet or blocks you walk, there is a colonial house there is something old. There is something right. that happened in the past. We're like, you know, the, this town is kind of like the Freedom Trail in Boston. And we got John Paul Jones, you know, we got, and maybe our opinion of these people has changed a lot. It's become more realistic with our understanding of black history and women's history and all these things. But you can walk through Portsmouth and touch things that are hundreds and hundreds of years old and have been there since for all that time period, I think that's critical to us knowing who we are. I couldn't agree more, and of course, very well said. And as somebody who has an Instagram account for his cat, I'll try not to resent uh, what you said there. But uh, <laughs> Cats are okay, but... <laughs> yeah, no, I, I no, understand I... completely what you're saying. It's uh, the 140-character um, world... It, 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 there's a lot of short attention spans going around these days. And Somebody so, recently yeah. criticized one of my hardcover books, and I said, what did you think of it? And they said it was too heavy. And <laughs> how many In what pounds sense? it weighed. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. it's like, but, you know, I'm a bit, I mean, uh, I, because of my eyesight, I use electronic media all the time. I'm, I'm constantly, I read everything on a Kindle. There's no reason we can't connect the two. It's just that, you can't, you can't touch a electronic device and feel something. Whereas when you go to, you know, the Fort Point Light and put your hand on it and walk up that stairway, and as we have done, walk out onto the parapet there, or look at the 
the upper area there, it's absolutely a different experience than mm-hmm. looking at it on your cell phone. Yes. Right. And that's why we're always trying to get, get people to experience it, especially kids. It's hard to be bored when you're climbing that staircase, you know, because you, you can't stop. You can't not think of the people that had to trudge up and down that stairway and to keep that light going. And then that makes you think of the people on the ship. And then that makes you think, you know, it, it, it expands outward. And again, that's part of the idea of pointed graves was that I wanted to have a voice from the past talking about the past to contemporary characters, but without boring you and, and this is the tricky part. You know, when you're writing what I do is called narrative nonfiction. We're using the tools of fiction all the time, because if we don't, our readers just buzz out. You, people have very short, you know, I read every Shakespeare play, all of Chaucer. I, you know, I read Chaucer in Middle English and Beowulf mm. in the early stuff. People don't do that anymore. I mean, maybe they do in school, but, you know. What what I do in newspapers is now, when I write a normal article, it's now referred to as long-form writing, as if, you know... <laughs> as opposed to Twitter, right? Yeah. Watch yeah. out. There's more than a paragraph here. And when I do hardcover books, I always think of it in, in layers. You know, the first thing is that people look at the pictures. So there's hundreds of pictures. Then they read the captions. And then 10 years later, they call me back and say, hey, I just read your book. Yeah. You know? It's been sitting on the coffee table for 10 years, and it never occurred to me there were words in it. That's fine with me, because that's how our brain works. It's okay. Um, but So this is very scary to me, because this is the first time I've ever done a book that's not full of pictures. We're visual yeah. beings. I mean, mm-hmm. we weren't started out reading books. You know, I say this a lot to people, but reading books and going to the theater even is, is hard work. It's work. It's not like sitting in front of the TV set and letting it wash all over you. Right. You know, and so that's the difference between, in many ways, between what I'm doing is that now I have to create those images in just words inside your head so that you find these locations and these characters. And if it works, if I believe that if people love the characters, they will get in their car and go to the locations where those characters were described. And, and mm-hmm. so in a sense... We're kind of promoting local tourism, promoting yeah. local history. That's fine with me. Whatever yeah. it takes to get people here to keep these historic sites standing, I'll do it. Well, I, I certainly got that feeling reading the book that that was uh, at least part of your, your aim, so you're succeeding at that. With that, you know, I hate to, to break it off, but uh, Dennis, it's always a pleasure speaking with you. It's a pleasure speaking with you today. And I wish you all the success in the world with Point of Graves. And uh, speaking of uh, words and pictures, I, I look forward to the uh, Netflix uh, series that will be based maybe on the whole trilogy eventually. Maybe you have the casting in mind already. I'll be looking forward to who will be playing all these characters. That I know, and, and the hardest part will be how to spend all that money when it shows up. <laughs> you'll you'll find a way, I'm sure. Uh, well, I, will, Dennis, I will definitely write you a large check when Netflix calls. Possibly for for Whaleback Lighthouse, so you can we yes, if you if we yeah. pay for, if you pay for the dock, we'll bring you out in the first uh, first tour for okay. sure. So that's a promise. It's a deal. Well, 
Yeah. Thank you so much, Dennis. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you, and good luck with the Thanks, book. Thanks, Jeremy. And good luck with what you do, which is great. To learn more about J. Dennis Robinson and his books, visit jdennisrobinson.com. And Point of Graves is also available on Amazon. You know, I'll be honest, I, I don't read a lot of novels these days, especially ones that don't center around lighthouses. But I enjoyed Point of Graves a lot because it's a good mystery novel and also because it celebrates my adopted hometown, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. I hope our readers will check it out along with Dennis's other books. As always, we thank all the volunteers, members, and staff of the U.S. Lighthouse Society. Check out uslhs.org to learn more about the society. And remember that donations and memberships support this podcast and all the other education and preservation activities of the society. If you listen to Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us. If you have ideas about interviews for this podcast, please email me at jeremy at uslhs.org. Franklin D. Roosevelt once said, quote, to reach a port, we must set sail. Sail, not tie an anchor. Sail, not drift, unquote. As always, thanks for listening and keep a good light. Shine, let it shine.